Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is legendary investor and adventurer, Jim Rogers. In this episode, we talk about why Jim thinks the next bear market is going to be the worst in his lifetime thanks to exploding debt. We also discuss his outlook for the US dollar, get his thoughts on Bitcoin, agriculture, commodities, China, some investing lessons, as well as his extensive travels around the world. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jim, and I think you will too. Jim Rogers, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you on. I am delighted to be here, Julia. It's nice to see you again. Well, it's nice to see you as well. And I've read a bunch of your books, um, Adventure Capitalist, Street Smarts, A Gift for My Children. I'm in the middle of Investment Biker. And I guess where I want to start here, Jim, is just about life and adventure. And wow, you certainly have a zest for life and adventure. And I was hoping um, for the folks to get to know you a little better, if you could kind of share um, some of your adventures. I know you have some Guinness World Records. You are a worldly man. You've traveled around the world. So I was hoping we could just kind of go back and revisit some of your adventures. Uh, if you could fill the folks in with some of your travels. Well, Julia, I grew up in a small backwoods town where my phone number was five. And I guess if you grow up in a place where your phone number is five, you either never leave or you want to see the world. And all of my life, I have wanted to see the world for some, who knows why, who knows why. But I remember many times telling people, I want adventure. I want I want to retire young and seek adventure. And it's obviously a defect in my brain or something, but I decided to see the world. Uh, and what I wanted to do was to go around the world on a motorcycle. That's what I wanted first, because motorcycles are great fun, and I wanted to see the world. Unfortunately, uh, I did that in 1980, and you probably don't remember, but there was the Soviet Union, there was Red China. The idea of seeing much of the world on a motorcycle was absurd. But I spent several years trying to get permission, and finally I drove across China. Finally, I drove around the world. I did that in 1990, 91, 92, but that was not enough. I wanted to see more. I was only two years, so I kept trying to get permission, and then I did it again for three years around the world again in a car, this time a custom-made car, and both of those both of those trips got me in the Guinness Book of Records. Uh, Julia, the Guinness Book of Records does not pay the rent, I promise you. My mother liked it, my parents liked it, but doesn't do much to pay the bills. Well, but I it was fun. I, I bet it was incredible. I can only imagine. And I would just be curious, like, after those experiences, how did it change your view of the world or what were some of the most profound takeaways for you from having such extensive travel and really on the ground travel? You're not not just flying to a country, but really experiencing it from the road. Well, if you see the world close to the ground, you really see what's going on. If you fly from airport to airport, well, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but you don't quite see the same the same world. Um I certainly, for one thing, I found out we're all the same. No matter where I went, people would say, where did you come from? I'd say, we came from there. And they would say, oh, gosh, those are dangerous people. And then they'd say, where are you going? I said, we're going there. Oh, they're worse. Those are very dangerous. We all are afraid of each other. And politicians love to stir it up. They love to stir up that other people are different and therefore bad. But no, we're all the same. We all want the same things out of life. And if we can all just sing and dance together, 
the world would be a much, much better place. Is there anywhere that um, you wish that you had gotten to travel um, if you look back on that time? Anywhere? or Yeah, is there a place that you haven't gone that you wish you could have gone during your travels? Well, I wish I had traveled, had had the opportunity to travel more in Iran. They would not let me. I saw a little bit of Iran, but not not what I wanted to. Uh, for some reason, I have in my mind that I want to go to Chad uh, in the middle of Africa. If you ask me why, I'll say I don't know, but I know it's one of the few countries in Africa that I haven't traveled through. But uh, other than those. I'm sure there are many places. In fact, I will answer to you uh, t- and tell you, Julia, that any place I haven't been is where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them I want to go again. But no, I still have this uh, urge to see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what I also liked in your books is um, during your travels, it almost like opened you up to investment opportunities. You, you told the story about going through Botswana um, and eventually investing there. So how did um that experience or those experiences, how did that help you as an investor or shape you as an investor? Well, Julia, given the nature of my background, if I go somewhere and I see something happening, I don't just wave and say, oh, isn't that interesting? I then pursue it when I see a positive change taking place. When I crossed the border, I'd driven all through Africa and I got to Botswana and I crossed the border and I said, Whatever this is, it's different. This is a very different place. You know, everything was efficient, worked properly and quickly, no black market, etc. So I knew immediately I was in a different place. The roads were different, the signs, everything was different. I got to the capital and I asked if there was a stock market. There was. I went down and I started investing because I could see that this was a unique country and a unique experience and it was different from other places I'd been but that happened whenever I saw something different happening positive I got involved uh, just to go back before I had noticed when I drove through China in years previous oh my gosh everything I had been told about China is wrong all that American propaganda about what evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, dangerous people the Chinese are was wrong. I could see that they were ambitious, hardworking, educated, disciplined. And so I, I started investing in China because I could see from close to the ground that things were different. Yeah, it's a it's a, such an interesting perspective, too, and especially being on the ground and just the way you view the world. Um, I want to talk a bit about your earlier years. You mentioned growing up in a small town in Alabama. And I heard you say your number was five, like someone would just dial five and they could get you on the phone. That's incredible. So let's go back. No, to like no, 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 Julia, there were no dials. Nobody, How'd that <laughs> work? <laughs> there were no dials. You, you, you picked up the phone and you waited and eventually a lady would come and she would say, number, please. In other words, what no, what number do you want? And I would tell her the number that I was calling, and then she would connect me to that number. And then I could we could speak, the people and I could speak. There were also something when we first, when I was first a kid, uh, we, it was a party line, so that more than one house shared the same numbers, and if and people could listen in. If I called Joe, people down the road could listen to what Joe and I were talking about. Uh, it was an often occurrence in those days. But we did 
Eventually, we got off the party line, and our phone number was five, just one five. Interesting. Um, okay, so growing up in Alabama, um, you, you get to Wall Street. How did how did you get interested in pursuing a career on Wall Street? How did that happen for you? Well, it was quite by, by accident. One day in my senior year at university, I went and interviewed, you know, companies would come to interview. And so I went for the interviews just to see what it was like. But one of the guys and I really got along well, he happened to be from Wall Street. Uh, I knew nothing about Wall Street. I knew it was in New York. I knew something bad had happened in 1929. I didn't know there was a difference in stocks and bonds. I just assumed stocks and bonds were the same thing. But I went, he gave me a summer job because we liked each other. And I fell in love because here was a place that would, I I didn't know, but I always had a passion about what was going on in the world. You know, often when we're young, we don't really know our passions or completely understand our passions. But here was a place that would pay me to know what was going on in the world and figure out what was happening next. I couldn't believe it. At the moment, at the previous I planned on going to law school, medical school, business school. I was a confused student like many other people. I didn't go to law school or business school or medical school. I went to Wall Street as soon as I could. Yeah. And at some point you were working with George Soros um, as part of the Quantum Fund. Um, talk to me about your time there and what did you learn uh, from your experience of working with George Soros? Well, I mean, it's true. That was over 40 years ago. You might as well ask me about my first wife. I mean, uh, that was a long, long, long time ago. I've had no contact with him since. Uh, what I learned, I guess, was if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to, you might become successful. I loved what I was doing, and I that's that's what I wanted to do in life at the time. And I spent all my time, all my as much as I could anyway, trying to find investments and did so. And we had some success. Yeah. Well, okay. You mentioned it was a long time ago, but there's one day that I'm sure you will not forget because it was on your birthday. And that was October 19th, 1987. Um, that was before I was born, but I was hoping maybe just for folks listening, um, a lot of my viewers and listeners weren't around then. Can you take us back to that time period? Because you, you saw that one coming. Well, yes. I mean, sometimes I do get it right, uh, but I I was selling short uh, in 1987 because I thought I could see that we were going to have a big collapse in the in the stock market, um, and I was selling short. And then, lo and behold, October 19th, which was my birth is my birthday, came along, and we had the biggest collapse in the stock market we'd ever had in history, the history of the stock exchange. What a birthday present. What a fantastic birthday present. Uh, who knew it was going to happen on my birthday, but it was quite a quite a good day for me. Yeah. What was what what was what was kind of um what was it that kind of tipped you off or made you kind of sense that? What were you seeing or what was kind of happening at that at that time? Oh gosh, it's a long time ago, but mainly there was a huge amount of speculation. Everybody was talking about how Things were going to be good forever. 
There was something called portfolio insurance that was concocted at the time, and people assumed they could never lose money because they would insure their portfolios. Well, portfolio insurance to me meant if things went bad, it would get worse because portfolio insurance was essentially selling selling protection. And if things did get bad, you'd have to sell more. And so I I assumed that it would be quite a bad day if and when people started having problems and lo and behold, I mean, I mean, it's not the first time I've seen a, a, a market get overheated. Uh, you know, I do have more experience now and overheated markets have happened throughout history all over the world. They're happening again and they're always going to happen. So just be careful. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess for folks also listening and watching, uh, Jim, you've been a bit of a sage, a bit of a soothsayer, I'd say. You got 1987 right. You you got the financial crisis right. You're short Fannie Mae. Um, that's something you wrote about in the book. Um, I think even the banks. Um, you also got the commodities bull market right. And I guess like what I want to know is how you 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 tend to look at things differently, which I think is really neat. Can you kind of talk to us about the way you look at things or your process or just like a bit more about like the lens in which you look at the world or investing. Well, Julia, first of all, I want you to know I make many mistakes. I'll tell you about my first wife. Oh, what a mistake that was. What a, what a foolish mistake that was. Well, we all uh, learn. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we all learn. I certainly learned from, from that experience. I guess part answer your question is that I, I, having grown up in the backwoods of Alabama where nobody had any money. I remember when I went to Wall Street, I would hear people say the strangest things. It was almost like money could just grow on trees, like money was easy to get. Well, now back where I grew up, money wasn't easy to get. Nobody had any money. We knew it was difficult. You had to work hard to get it. So when I would hear these strange things, I knew something was wrong, which I guess made me question more and more everything. Uh, and I learned early to question everything and everybody. When I first went to Wall Street, Julia, I assumed all these people knew what they were doing. They were older, they were educated, they were experienced. It didn't take me long to see that they didn't know any more than I did. You know, they would say things that just made no sense. So I learned the hard way that you have to do your own research you have to question everything and you have to be skeptical about everything. And fortunately, it paid off. I like that. So there's almost like a curiosity combined with a skepticism. Um, if you were to like you talk to- You should definitely, I'm trying to teach my daughters, to my children to question everything, to be skeptical and not to accept what, especially when everybody says something that if everybody says to you, the sky is blue, I urge them to go look out the window to I see really like if that. the sky is blue. No, I like that. I think it's important. Um, and I love that you you just mentioned like, you know, teaching that to your daughters. And sometimes I just wonder, uh, you know, we talk a lot on this show about like critical thinking. Um, do you ever feel like people don't, they don't deploy critical thinking anymore? Or, um, they're not asking these questions. I, I just wonder like, what what do you think? Well, uh, yes, of course, but as I read back in history, I'm sure it was always the case that people didn't accept critical thinking. If you go back and read some of the great philosophers, 
They were always complaining about how other people didn't understand what they were saying or didn't question what was going on around them. I'm afraid that's been true since the beginning of time. Uh, especially if you read history, you look at some of the depressions that have happened when people, nobody believed it could happen or would happen. Some of the wars, you know, whenever wars start, everybody on both sides says, oh, this is great. It's going to be over in six months. We will show them. We will show them, you know, and after two or three years, everybody say, oh, my God, how did we get into this? How do yeah. we get out of this? Yeah. They start realizing the reality of life and the world. Yeah. That was another thing I picked up in your book, um, A Gift to My Children. You're talking about, um, you know, the importance of studying history and philosophy. And um, I think even psychology was the other one that you brought up there. I, I do want to bring up, um, you know, more current uh, times with you and get your perspective on, you know, the global markets and uh, the global economy and what are kind of your big picture views today? Well, Julia, uh, since 2009, the world has printed a huge amount of money. Never in American history, and I'll use America since it's the largest uh, economy, never in American history has the government printed so much money, and never have we had such a long period without an economic problem, a serious economic problem. So we're certainly overdue. Now, maybe it's going to go on 30 years. I don't know, but I doubt it. I uh, see signs that we're starting to have problems. You know as well as I do that markets are going down. Bonds were certainly in a bubble, and that bubble is popping, as all bubbles do. So I suspect we're going to have more inflation because of money printing, higher interest rates, partly because of inflation. Uh, and so we're going to have some difficult times. We have always had bear markets throughout history all over the world, and we're going to have more. I would imagine the next one, uh, this one, uh, is going to be the worst in my lifetime because we had a problem in 2008 because of too much debt. Julia, since 2009, the debt all over the world has skyrocketed everywhere. I mean, even China now has huge amounts of debt. And they had no debt 20 years ago. But now everybody has gigantic debt. And we have to have a very serious problem because of all the debt. Oh, a couple of questions there. Um, gosh, you mentioned the next one, the next bear market you expect will be the worst in your lifetime. Um, which which one was the worst one that you've experienced? And I mean, like, if you had to kind of handicap it, how bad do you think it could be? Well, uh, I would go tell you that most bear markets uh, have been very serious in my lifetime. And that's because we have, like always throughout history, we have a lot of speculation. Things get overpriced. Everybody thinks, ah, this is wonderful. It's going to go on forever. And then when it starts collapsing, you have many companies go down a great deal. In bear markets, some stocks go down 70, 80, 90%. It's normal. Um, which one is the worst in my lifetime? They've all been very bad uh, because of, and they've always been worse because of debt. But this one, I have seen the, the consequences of debt all over the world on markets. And this, the debt has never been this high. In, in American history or world history. So this has to be a very, very bad, bad market. And many stocks will go down more than we can believe. Uh, they always do. 
I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just saying they always do. Go back and read about bear markets, and you will see that especially some of the high flyers go down huge amounts. It always happened, and it will happen again. And you, I can see signs now, Julia, you know, new people are coming into the market, as they always do towards the end. You know, they're calling up their friends and this, oh, I've discovered this new thing called the stock market. It's so wonderful. It's fun. It's exciting. You can make money. And it's easy. It's so easy. They're always talking about how easy. They always do in every, at the end of every bull market. Things like SPACs. SPACs have been around for 300 years. SPACs have often have a revival at the end of a bull market. And all of these things have happened before. Now they're happening again. And bear markets have happened before. And bear markets are always very, very vicious. Yeah. Um, That's why I'm, I'm grateful to have this conversation with you because I think it is really important. And, um, you know, you, you're incredibly knowledgeable and it's important to bring these things up. And, um, in 2013, in your book, street smarts, um, you actually brought up this issue of debt. Um, I took a bunch of notes at the time, but you were talking about the debt will be higher. Problems will be worse. Um, and that the nation here in the U S will have lost its financial wherewithal to address, uh, their grievances. So I guess my question for you, Jim, is are we, too late on addressing our debt problem. Like, what does this mean for, you know, not not only my generation, but your your daughter's generation and future generations? What do you think are the longer term consequences of all of the debt that's been taken on? Well, the United States is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world now, and the debt goes higher every day. Unfortunately, I don't like saying this. I'm an American like you are, and taxpayer and voter. Uh, but I can see what's happening, and I can also know enough history to know that this always ends in very bad, bad way. Um, in Washington, they talk about doing something about it. Nearly every politician in my lifetime has talked about the debt. Nobody's done anything about it except make it higher and higher. And whether we like it or not, this will have serious consequences. It will have serious consequences for the U.S. dollar, too. The U.S. dollar is and has been the world's uh, international medium of exchange. Unfortunately, throughout history, we've had many uh, world currencies, and all of them have disappeared after 100 years. I mean, not disappeared, but moved on after 100 years or so. Well, the U.S. dollar has been on top a long time. Unfortunately, now we have the fundamental problem of gigantic debt, but we also have the political problem that Washington is now using the dollar as a, as a weapon. Uh, you know, the, the international medium of exchange is supposed to be neutral. Anybody is supposed to be able to use it for anything. That's what's, the way it's supposed to work. But now if Washington doesn't like you, they cut you off. They say you cannot use the U.S. dollar. So many people, unfortunately, are now saying, even our friends are now saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to work. So everybody is now looking for something to compete with the U.S. dollar uh, because we have to have a neutral international medium of exchange. And the dollar is no longer neutral, unfortunately. And Washington is shooting itself in the foot. 
and everybody, even our friends, are looking for something to compete with the dollar. Do I like it? No. No, of course not. Uh, but I, too, am looking. I don't know what they're, what's going to wind up on top, but I'm looking just like everybody else is because I want to be able to buy it, too. So I guess you're, you're bringing up the U.S. dollar and kind of like your outlook there. What do you think ultimately happens with the U.S. dollar? Wait, say that again. What do you what think? About the US? Do you what do you think happens with the U.S. dollar? What is maybe your longer term outlook? <clears throat> well, what has always happened throughout history when this happens to a currency is people start moving away from it. They start looking for other currencies to use instead, and they some people start using the new currency, whatever it happens to be. You know, when the pound sterling was the world's reserve currency, people gradually and slowly started moving to the U.S. dollar and using the U.S. dollar, and fewer and fewer people use the pound sterling. I mean, I don't think many people now talk about the pound sterling as a medium of exchange. Some do, but not many. Um, and next thing you know, it is the dollar, and nobody uses sterling anymore. Sterling gets little, pound sterling gets less and less valuable. Often countries have to impose exchange controls when things like this happen, and it gets to be ugly. I mean, and many, many people left the United Kingdom as things got worse and worse. And unfortunately, nobody wants to leave. I mean, few people want to leave the U.S. now, but I'm afraid that if things do get worse and the value of the money goes down and the U.S. imposes exchange controls, which nearly always has happened in history. More and more people will not want to go to the U.S. and some will even leave. How about some of your um, prescriptions for the U.S.? Is there anything that you think the U.S. or America uh, that America could do um, to make some? Oh yeah, changes? these are simple. These are simple lessons. History show you you got to cut your deficit spending and you got to cut your debt. With an act, not an axe, with a chainsaw. I mean, you have to take drastic action because things are so bad now. I repeat, we are the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. No one has ever been as deep in debt, and history is very, very clear. When this happens, countries, the currency goes into decline, and eventually the country goes into decline. I mean, it's been happening for hundreds of years. How about, um, I want to bring this up with you. How about how about Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is there are a lot of people trading cryptocurrencies and having a lot of fun. So I'm making money. There have been many cryptocurrencies which have already disappeared and gone to zero, as I'm sure you know. So it's not that much fun <laughs> and games as people hope. Um, I do have not bought or sold any cryptocurrencies because my view, the, the bulls say that crypto money is going to be the new money and will replace government money. My response is, well, first of all, all governments, nearly all governments are working on crypto money. Eventually, all money is going to be on the, on the computer. It already is in China. China. You can't take a taxi with money. You have to have your phone, not your computer money. You can't buy an ice cream. China is ahead of the rest of the world, but everybody's working on it, including the U.S. And, you know, Julie, when the U.S. government says, okay, guys, this is now money. This money here is on the phone. But if you want to use that other money, you can. 
that's not the way governments work, certainly not the way Washington, D.C. works. You know, they want control, they want power, they want monopoly, and I'm afraid that as long as cryptocurrencies are just trading vehicles, who cares? But if they become a serious threat to government money, governments will react. Yeah. Um, you know, just going back to more of like the macro views, um, when you kind of unpacked those, inflation, um, more more inflation is what you brought up. So I guess it begs the question, Jim, how can folks protect themselves or what what are the ways to protect yourself from a future of more pervasive inflation? Well, throughout history, Julia, when we have inflation, it's happened many, many times in world history. You know, if you own the things that go up in price, you protect yourself and you might even make a whole lot of money. Uh, there were people who made money in the 70s. Uh, the things, well, I mean, silver often goes up, gold often goes up, agricultural prices go up. So if you find, if you can figure out the things that really go, go up in price, and you own those, you will come out okay. You mentioned um, gold and silver. Can you elaborate a bit more your views there? I uh, would love to hear you kind of unpack those. Well, throughout history, when people and their problems, people turn to gold and silver, whether we like it or not. You know, when, when Jesus Christ was betrayed, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver because that was the valuable item in those days. But it's always been valuable throughout history and certainly throughout many parts of the world. In fact, the U.S., when the U.S. was founded, the money was based on silver originally, initially. Then they eventually changed to gold, too, later on. But no, gold and silver have always been useful. And, Julia, I'm an old peasant. All of us peasants know that when things go wrong, we want to have some gold in the closet. We want to have some silver under the bed because that's what people turn to when things get desperate. And they always have. Maybe they won't in the future, but they always have. How about um, agriculture? This is something I'm actually I've been keen to talk to you about for a few years. So I'm glad we're having this talk as well. Um, what Can you help me understand your views as it relates to agriculture and is this like wanting to own um, assets like farmland? What is the thought process when it comes to agriculture? Well, agriculture has been a disaster for a long time. It's been so bad that in the U.S., the average age of farmers is 57, 58. In, in Japan, the average age of farmers is 66, 67. I mean, the highest rate of suicide in the U.K. is in agriculture. I mean, farming has been a disaster, Julia. More people in the U.S. study public relations than study agriculture. So whether we like it or not, this has been an area of disaster all over the world for a long time. And history is clear that eventually we all have to eat, we all have to have clothes, and that agriculture will turn around. There have been many periods in history when the farmers have been the richest, most powerful people in the world have also been periods when they've been disaster. You know, as I said, highest rate of suicide in the UK is agriculture, but it's been such a nightmare. But that will change. It always has. And when it does, we usually have a reasonably long period when farmers do very well again. 
I mean, uh, again, this is just simple stuff. I'm not trying to be some sort of insightful guru or something. I'm just telling you, read your history. You will see yeah. it's happened many times before, and it will happen many times in the future. I know, but you're so good at explaining things. Um, and one of the other things I noticed uh, in Chapter 5 of Street Smarts, <laughs> I know I read all your books, um, you talk about um, that you invest in secular trends and that you don't often change your positions. And I think that's, you mentioned that because you were, when you were um, traveling the world, it's why one of the reasons you're able to do that. Um, what are the big secular trends right now for you, like the long trends? Well, a few, which I'll mention, uh, the rise of China. China has certainly was a disaster 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and Mao Zedong and the communist ruling China. But China's had several periods in its history when it was on top as a nation. Uh, I suspect that China's on the rise again and will be extremely successful in the 21st century. Now, nothing goes straight up. America became the most successful country in the 20th century, but along the way, we had many depressions, civil war, massacres in the streets, bankruptcies. We had many problems, but my goodness, we became gloriously successful. China will have problems too. I just mentioned agriculture. I would suspect that after many years of problems in agriculture, it is changing. Uh, that things have to turn around. Somebody is going to be the new farmers and those people are going to make good successes, I would suspect, in the future. Uh, technology has always been changing. I don't know much about technology, but I do know that if you can figure it out, there are going to be spectacular successes. There always have been. I mean, at one point, some people made huge amounts of money in electricity. Electricity changed the world. It was a great new technological advance. Well, we're having other technological advances, too, now. And if you can figure them out, you're going to make a whole lot of money. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've been really unique about you is like you've been able to spot some really interesting opportunities. What What's like the opportunity right now that is most interesting to you? Oh, boy, I have a, well, my sense of, I'm not very good at market timing, so I'm the wrong person to ask, but I did mention agriculture. Agriculture has been a nightmare for a long time, so I would suspect that is an opportunity uh, in the U.S. and other countries around the world. Uh, hard assets because inflation, because governments all over the world have printed so much money, so I would suspect you're going to see more opportunities and hard assets, real assets, whether that's silver or wheat, whatever it happens to be. Uh, these are opportunities I hope that we can all find and, and take advantage of. And again, if you can figure out the technological changes, the fantastic opportunities. You know, at one time, radio, the radio was a gigantic technological change. Uh, in 1929, Radio Corporation of America was the hottest stock in the markets. Uh, we still have radio, but the stock of Radio Corporation of America never sold that high again. That's what bubbles are like. At one time, railroads with a hot, hot, hot new technology and development, 
And if you bought railroads in the bubble, you never made any money. We still have railroads, but you never made any money if you bought it in the bubble. So we, we have always had technological changes. We always will. Just be careful. Be careful of bubbles. Yeah, be careful of bubbles. Um, you mentioned uh, a little while ago about bonds being in a bubble. Um, can we explore that a bit? Like how how is it that bonds are in a bubble right now? Well, Julia, bonds have never been this expensive in the history of the world. Uh, earlier this year, U.S. government bonds were yielding 1%. I mean, nothing uh, government money. And that has never, ever happened in world history. And that's the same in many other countries around the world. Bonds were never so expensive. Now, you will say, well, just because it never happened doesn't mean it's a bubble. Well, maybe not. But uh, no People do realize, most people realize that they need some kind of return on their money. They can't just put their money in the, in the closet and hope it doesn't go away because inflation will kill it and monies do lose value. So I know that, I think I know that bonds have been in a bubble. Bonds in America have been going up for 40 years. Their bonds made their low in 1980 uh, and they made their high again recently. So after 40 odd years and the lowest interest rates in the history of the world, that sounds to me like a bubble. Gotcha. I've also heard you, Jim, talk about um, short selling being a lost art. Um, I was hoping maybe you could elaborate on that as well. And is, is there anything right now that you're short? Very little. I do have uh, a few shorts in technology just because they seem to get so extremely high. But no, not much. Uh, there's so much pessimism around. And remember, I told you before, Julie, my, I'm not very good at market timing, but there's been so much pessimism around right now. Usually when there's huge pessimism, something happens to break the pessimism and we have a big rally. I, I don't know, and this is not a prediction, but let's say there was peace in Ukraine. Well, that would cause a lot of, pes of pessimism to disappear. Markets all over the world would have a big rally, and that would, in my view, probably be the last rally. And it could be a very, very big rally because there's so much money around. Uh, but that is my view. And when there's a, people get very, very optimistic, a way to make money is to sell short. Uh, not always, but there's, well, there is always something that's getting overpriced, but it's not always that you have the whole market getting overpriced. And that may happen again. And when it does, I urge people to learn about selling short. Um, I guess in, in that vein too, like in, in your own experience, like what what were some of the things that you learned about short selling? Do you have any like takeaways, especially for the younger investors out there watching and listening? Well, one of my great early early successes on Wall Street was I uh, was pessimistic. I bought puts, which is another way to sell short. And within six months, I had tripled my money when everybody around me was going broke. And I said, oh, this is easy. I'm a genius. I'm going to be so rich. So I reversed my position the day the market hit bottom, which made me think I was even smarter. I waited for the market to rally. I did so. I sold short six stocks. And three months later, I'd lost everything, everything. 
and which leads me to the lesson that people need to know is markets can do strange things. Uh, I was right about everything. All six of those companies eventually went bankrupt. So what? I lost everything first, even though I was right about those companies. And you have to know that the market will do things that none of us can believe. And so when you sell short, you better be careful of the market and other people. Yeah. The, even if you're right, you can lose a lot of money. Yeah. The painful lessons. Cause yeah, you're right. Cause it's like, it, it can be almost infinite losses, I suppose, if it rips higher um, when you're not when you're almost, short. it can be infinite losses. So be careful. Be careful. Those are um, certainly good lessons. I want to go back to um, China because you've been invested there for, for a long time and you've uh, been going to China for decades now um, and there's a lot of conversation these days about China and geopolitical tensions there. What do you make of it? Um, and I guess like to ask you, what do you think is next for China? Well, it certainly grieves me to see what this what Washington is doing. Mr. Trump, especially was the one, you know, whenever politicians in any country throughout history have had problems, they blame the foreigners. It's always easy to blame the foreigners because they have different skin, different language, different food, different everything. So everybody loves to blame the foreigners all over the world, throughout history, whoever the foreigners are. You blame the foreigners when they're problems. So Trump started doing that. Unfortunately, it has continued, and these things do have a way of building up. I mean, China and America had some fantastic 20 or 30 years where we were both making a lot of money together. I would love to see that again. Uh, Chinese don't particularly dislike Americans, and Americans don't, well, they do now because the, the propaganda has been so vicious on both sides, especially our side. Uh, unfortunately, throughout history, whenever there's been a dominant power that's either stagnant or in decline and a rising power, they have often clashed, uh, and that has sometimes led to war. It, it grieves me a lot because there's no reason for us to dislike each other or to fight with each other. Some of the stuff I see, the propaganda I see on both sides, is just appalling to me. But propaganda has always been appalling throughout history all over the world. It's amazing what governments can say and do, and people start to believe it. You know, one of the first Probably the original guy who understood propaganda was named Goebbels. He was a Nazi, and he kept saying, you know, if we say the same thing enough times, everybody will believe it. Unfortunately, he was right, and governments have learned that. They just keep, if you keep saying the same thing, eventually everybody believes it, no matter how absurd it might be. Do you worry that there'll be a conflict? Well, Julia, I've read enough history to know that we've had wars since the beginning of time all over the world. Uh, I know there will be more conflicts and more wars. Um, I hope not in your lifetime. Uh, I hope not in your children's lifetime. Let's turn to just talking about lessons. Um, and I know you wrote a book about lessons for your children. Uh, what do you... What do you want to teach? And I know you didn't actually, actually, I think you wrote, um, they used to not want children. Um, but 
obviously it turned out really great. And I know you encourage people to have children. Um, what are some of the lessons that you want your children to take away? Well, first, <laughs> several, but be skeptical, question everything, uh, double check, do your own research, do your own homework to make sure that what you're being told is correct. I mean, there are the simple lessons, do your homework, um, be on time for meetings. You know, there are many simple lessons, be polite to people, uh, many lessons that we all need to learn. You know, our parents often were right. We, maybe we didn't know it when we were 12 years old. But, you know, I look back on it now. We know that our parents often had good ideas. So I'm trying to teach my children and rear my children to be smart and successful. I cannot make them successful in life, but I hope I can give them the basic tools. How about when it comes to finances or um, investing? What are some of the lessons you'd pass on there? Well, when they were babies, I got them all, got them several piggy banks because I wanted them to learn that money is to be saved uh, and invested, not to be spent. Many young people, many people, <clears throat> when they get money, they think they're supposed to spend it. I wanted them, my children, to know, no, no, when you get money, you're supposed to save it. So we, whenever they would get money, we would go put it in the piggy bank. And when the piggy bank got a lot of money, we would then go down to the big bank and put it in and they would into an account and they would start learning interest. I wanted them to learn about money. Money certainly ruins many people who never understand it. I don't know if I'm getting it right or not. I have not taught my children about investing because I keep waiting for them to want. You know, I have learned that if people want to learn something, they're very good at it. And so far, they have not spent much effort asking me to teach about investing. But if and when they do, if and when they're ready, I hope I can teach them what little I know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you know a lot. What 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 do you think makes a good investor? What are the traits that make for a good investor or help you get on that path to being a good investor? Well, there are various kinds of investors. I, I have known some people who are great short-term traders. I mean, it was astonishing how good they were at short-term trading. I'm hopeless at it. I'm terrible at it. But I, I have known people. I mean, I knew a guy once. I mean, he, he didn't really know what IBM did, but it didn't matter. He could trade IBM and stocks like that, like nobody in the world. And, and that's what he did and, and made a lot of money at it and had built great success. I'm not any good at it. Um, what strength I have had is research and questioning things and digging deep to find out what's really going on. That has been whatever success I've had. That has been my way by questioning everything, finding things that were cheap. And if I could see something changing, something positive changing, maybe doing a lot of research, confirming it, and then making an investment. There are various ways to invest. It's not all the same. We all have to learn our own way uh, if we're going to be successful. That's true of anything, certainly of investing. How about, um, you know, I, I, interview a lot, I interview a lot of investors and CEOs and stuff. I notice a lot of folks who are successful are voracious readers. Um, would you say that would be important for investing is reading and if what what would what do you read like what is your content diet 
Well, yes, yes, yes. And, but there are people, as I said before, I told you about this guy. Who he, by the way, he went to Wall Street every day, died at 106. He was down there trading every day. He loaded so much, and he was so good at it. Uh, he didn't have to read a lot. As I said, he hardly knew what I he knew what IBM was in computers. Yes, yes, yes. But he could not explain to you IBM at all. So it depends on your own style. And my style was to read as much as I could. Everybody, if the more you read about companies, the economy, the world, probably the more successful you will be. You will find out what's really happening and you will learn to question. So yes, my I guess my a single word of advice would be to read, read, read as much as you can. If you read the annual report of a company you're investing in, you would have done more than most people on Wall Street. If you read the notes to an annual report, you'll have done more than 98% of people on Wall Street. So if you read, it will give you a big advantage. Uh, that's something I learned early uh, in my career. I like that. I, I read the annual reports too, especially when I'm preparing for an interview with someone. Um, another thing- Be sure to read the notes also. Yeah. Um, and letters and all this stuff. Um, one of the things that folks might not know about you, Jim, is that you were a professor. You taught at Columbia, um, which I thought was really cool. And in your book, um, you had some really prescient um, observations about bloated administrations at colleges, soaring tuition costs and college debt burdens. And I want to bring this up because recently here in the U.S., you've probably seen the news about some of the um, student loan forgiveness um I guess for certain um, certain certain folks within a certain uh, range of income and ten to twenty thousand depending. Um, have you given much thought lately about soaring tuition costs and rising student debt? And what are your latest thoughts there? Well, Julia, yes. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take much reading to realize that the cost of education, college education in the U.S. It skyrocketed beyond most comprehension. I mean, if you go to Princeton, it's, you're going to cost you over a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money for four years education. Now, Princeton's a wonderful place. Don't don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic place. But uh, a lot of these places have huge administrative costs. Uh, the administrators, the, certainly the professors make a lot, uh, but it's not just the professors, it's everybody involved. It became such a free lunch for most universities. They knew they could charge and get away with it because there was such a, there came such a huge emphasis on university education, get yourself a college degree. Everybody thought that was the way to riches. Um, unfortunately, Calls got out of control. There were very few constraints on the cost of an education, still are, but we're starting to learn, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, a college degree does not make one successful automatically. And second, even if it does, the cost benefit, we have to see how much this costs. And I've been around some of these fancy colleges enough to know that be careful, be very careful, because the idea of a free lunch is one that most people learn is not going to last very long. Yeah. How about, um, you know, degrees like, do you have any, some people um, talk about this, I don't know, do you have any views on like things like getting an MBA um, 
do you think that's worth it? Well, in my view, no. An MBA, and I well, I did teach MBAs at one point at a, at a fancy Ivy League school. I have learned that in much of what MBAs are taught is not necessarily accurate or correct, uh, and that the MBAs cost a huge amount of money and two years of one's life. And in my view, uh, not my view, I know that there are many, many, many very successful people who never had an MBA. So in my view, an MBA is not worth it. I, I never got an MBA, um, but I would urge people to be very, very questioning about the value and need for an MBA. I would suspect that if you go down and sell soybean short a couple of times, it'll teach you more than an MBA will. To round out this conversation, we started with your travels and your adventures and, you know, a couple of things, just reading your books, um, you know, just kind of thinking about like the future of um, the world. I, I know like there's some things you said, the more like the more you learn, the more you realize like how little you know, but also like you just had some fascinating observations and um, even thoughts that maybe they'll even be more sovereigns over the next hundred years, I guess, kind of looking out let's say like long-term, what are kind of some of the views of how you think the world might change? Well, first of all, I want, and I try to teach my children and everybody this, the world is constantly changed. Julia, no matter what we think today is going to be wrong in 15 years, you can pick any year in history, pick 1900. Everything that people thought in 1900 was wrong in 1915. Everything that people thought was right in 1920 was wrong in 1935. It's a simple lesson. You can just go and look it up. You will see that no matter what people think is going to be wrong, because the world is changing. And what one has to do, first of all, is understand that. But second is figure out how it's going to change. And then you will be successful and you will adapt. Uh, now, it's not easy. I didn't say it was easy, but I do know that no matter any year you pick in history, the world was totally different 15 years later. So I guess that's the first lesson that it's important to know and then figure out, okay, figure out how to know the changes and figure out what's going to be different 15 years from now. And then you will be successful and content. I guess that's the most important thing. I guess maybe... What we all need is to watch Julia to figure out what's going to change and how it's going to change. Uh, and then we too can succeed. <laughs> That's really kind of you. And um, Jim Rogers, I just thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your stories and lessons and ideas. And I'm grateful that we got to have this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure, Julia. This was fun. I hope we can do it again sometime. Would Thank love you. to have you back on. Thank you. Take care, Jim. Have a great rest of your day. And be careful. Teach everybody to be careful and be prepared. Okay? That's a good way Thank to leave you. it. We'll do it. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.